This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Uh, every week I go through a ton of reading and research materials, and uh, every week I compile some of the favorite, my favorite things that I've found during the course of the week and put them together in a Saturday morning email. Um, a lot of times it's my favorite chart of the week or my favorite video, a tweet. Uh, could be a, a link to a story that I found very interesting. Um, if you're interested in receiving something like this, go to thefelderreport.com and you can sign up for the, the email right there on the homepage. My guest for this episode is uh, my friend Eric Cinnamon, and Eric was my very first guest on the podcast. If you didn't listen to that episode, I really encourage you to go back. Eric is just a fascinating guy, super successful, small cap mutual fund manager, and in that conversation, I really picked his brain, and he was so generous to share with us his uh, investment process, a lot of the details of that, how he values companies, and so forth. Um, so if you've only started listening to this podcast recently, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that one. But uh, in that earlier conversation, Eric mentioned that every single quarter, he listens to uh, 300 conference calls, roughly, um, and makes notes. And so he gets a, a unique perspective on a lot of the trends that are affecting corporate America. And he and I have been conversing via email and, and such uh, over the last few months. He's been blogging about it, uh, about a, a theme he's noticing more and more um, in, among corporate America, and that's just rising costs, rising inflationary pressures. And so I thought I should have him back on the show so we can discuss this, and, and that's exactly what we did. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Eric Cinema. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Eric Cinnamon, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hey, Jesse. Uh, long time no talk. Uh, it's good to be back. Long time no talk on the podcast, but we have been in communication via email. And, you know, the first time I had you on, I was really just curious to talk to you about your process, which, um, you know, became a hugely popular episode. I think that was, that was very valuable. But since then, you know, it's gosh, it's probably been about a year. Uh, I've been, you know, reading your blog and, and following, um, all of your, your comments about what you read in the, the earnings reports. And actually, in our first conversation, you mentioned that you, you go through about 300 every quarter. And I thought, man, how cool would it be to have Eric come on every quarter and just talk about what he's you know reading through these reports, um, but especially because you found some, some common themes lately. So I thought this would be a great time to check back in with you and see kind of what you're seeing in those reports. Yeah, well, I'm finishing up earnings season now. I probably have another 50 to go through. But I've probably gone through 150 or so. So I, you know, I do have 300 names, but keep in mind that, you know, some have different fiscal years than, than calendar years. So they don't all report, you know, are the quarters don't end, you know, March 31st, uh, all of them. Sure. Um, so what the common theme I'm seeing right now is, has been really something I've been noticing since Q2 2017. And that has been rising corporate costs, uh, labor, freight, uh, you know, raw materials, insurance, those type of things. Um, I started noticing in Q2 2017, and it started to pick up steam in Q3 17, and then Q4 became very noticeable. 
And then Q1 2018, the, the quarter I just reviewed, um, you know, again, the, the trend seems to be accelerating. So it's something I've been paying very closely attention to. Um, again, though, Q2 2017, you know, at first I was like, I don't know if this is a sustainable trend, what exactly is going on. Uh, it's just something I need to watch. And, um, you know, I've been focused on that a lot. I've been writing about it a lot. You know, when I first started the blog, I talked a lot about process and, you know, I had a lot of things in my mind. But lately, I'm really I'm talking more about what's going on with, the, with my opportunity set. So it's sort of a shift. The blog's taking a shift for, uh, I don't know, hopefully the better, um, where, where I'm, I think I'm writing more about the businesses I follow, which I, I tend to enjoy a little more. Yeah, well, you there was a couple um – Things you mention in, in, in those posts that, um, and I'm just going to quote you here. Uh, when developing my opinion on inflation, I prefer skipping the middleman. Wall Street economists and central bankers are going directly to the source. Businesses operating in real time and in the real economy. And this is, to me, extremely inv- valuable because you know, we see the CPI report. You see what the Fed is you know, saying about inflation and, and Wall Street economists and they're all saying, yeah, it might be rising, but it's subdued or it's just, a, you know, a temporary, um, you know, uptick. Uh, what, in, how does that jibe with what you're seeing in the earnings reports? Yeah, I mean, yesterday I was going through a call and at the same time um, I was watching Bloomberg TV. I, I had been going to Starbucks every morning uh, to my new office, Starbucks, uh, but they raised the price of my favorite drink by 10%. <laughs> so, so I decided to work more from home. And, uh, so I'm at home watching Bloomberg TV and an economist comes on and I didn't, I didn't really look at the CPI report, but the economist starts to talk about inflation or I don't know if it's core or the, the regular number. Again, I, I don't pay too close attention to it, but it, I think he said it was up 0.1%. And at the same time, I'm reading this call, and it's screaming inflation. <laughs> it's, saying, it's saying how all their costs are going up and inflation is a real deal. And uh, so I, I start, I go, you know what? I'm going to write a post today. I don't have much time because I'm going through all these earnings reports. I'm going to write a post today. It's summarizing all the examples I have for this quarter so far. Again, I've probably been through 150 names. And I'm going to pull from there all the mentioning of uh, cost pressures, pricing power, et cetera. And so I start doing this, and I think it'll take me 10, 15-minute posts. I mean, this is going to be pretty easy, right? So I start going through. I have about 100 pages of notes for my, for my calls so far. Start going through these notes, you know, trying to pull, pull up the, the mentioning of inflation or costs. Um, and before I know it, or not before I know it, four hours later, I'm still going through my notes because there's so many examples. Uh, there, was, there was over 70 really good ones I pulled out, and then it was, you know, over 12 pages of, uh, you know, just, just one-liners and um, – so I didn't post it. It was too long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but there's so many signs this quarter. Again, it builds each quarter, really from Q2 2017. I don't know what happened in 2017, but that's clearly clearly when the ch- uh, trend changed. But but this is from, from the post I was going to do, but, but I didn't. Uh, you know, here's just some examples. Uh, Apatar Group, uh, they do uh, dispensers, plastic dispensers, you know, perfume, lotion, that, that kind of thing. Um, it says, look, I think everybody who is following the current environment sees inflationary pressures coming, and there's no way to escape that. Uh, Fastenal, I mean, most of you know that company, one of the market leaders in fasteners. As you know, there's meaningful inflation going on in our business. Our labor costs continue to rise. Uh, Hubble. Uh, Electric distribution products, uh, they sell off the utilities. 
you can't, with this much inflation, you can't catch up overnight. Uh, Casey General Stores, the average price of fuel during the period increased 13%. Uh, RPC, Energy Service Company, everyone pretty famously knows about shortages of skilled labor and employment issues. Uh, Steinmart, we're selling a very strong regular price selling. Uh, Kirby Inland, Inland Barge Company, um, we saw positive change in market dynamics here. For spot market pricing increased 10 to 15%. Patterson UTI, energy service company, uh, average operating cost, uh, $14,000 due primarily to higher than expected labor costs. I mean, I could go on and on. And, and these aren't just cyclical companies. And there's many that are, that are consumer businesses, uh, talking about rising costs and rising wages. So, I, again, there's so many examples. I don't even have time. Uh, this is kind of interesting, really quick. Uh, Carter's Incorporated, they do a baby clothing. That is normally a deflationary. You think about you know, uh, infant clothing, a kid's clothing. That has typically been deflationary. But they're saying in 2019, they, they, this may change. They'll say, our teams are in Asia now negotiating spring 2019. We'll have more visibility to those costs in July. We are assuming over the next five years that we'll start to see some modest inflation. Our experience in recent years has been consistently lower product costs every year. But for modeling purposes, we're assuming modest inflation. There's a, there's a change in mindset in inflation now uh, with, with these companies. And what's happening is, is you know, a year ago, really 2015, 2016, that was a more of a, a deflationary environment. But what's changed now is I think companies are more comfortable asking for an increase in price because as a lot of these companies are saying – Everyone knows, right? In the corporate world, everyone knows. You know, the economists are, that the focus on government data, you know, will still talk about there not being inflation. But everyone in the corporate America, not everyone, but but I think most of the companies that I follow are well aware of this. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think you titled a post. It was perfect. The Consumer Last to Know Price Index. <laughs> and I think that's... That's, that's right. But, but just be, it, 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 there's a lag in inflation, right? I mean, it's a process. If you look at a lot of these companies, they'll, they'll openly talk about their pricing intentions. When their costs go up, they don't put in the price increase that day. You know, they are it, it's very methodical. They have to talk to their customers uh, or their vendors. Their suppliers are talking. And so, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mo- it takes months to implement a price increase. So it, yeah, doesn't, was, yeah, it doesn't happen right away. So it's, I, I'm saying it's what I'm seeing now, not only is a change in trend, I'm seeing it in the pipeline. Right. And like you said, or, or maybe I said the CPI is, is the last to know, but, but that's, I think very true. But yeah, that's why a, you don't want to get behind the curve when it comes to inflation. Right. 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 There's well, and, and speaking of that, well, to, speaking to your first point, there was a great chart in um, the Wall Street Journal's uh, The Daily Shot, which I read on a daily basis, just a rundown of great charts every day, um, showing the percent of firms um, uh, planning to raise prices. And it usually leads, you know, CPI, just like you're talking about. And it's the highest percentage of companies, you know, since 2006, seven. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're very clear in their intentions. They're going to raise prices and CPI is going to follow. But, you know, when people start, it, it's just crazy to me when I hear people saying that this is, uh, you know, transitory, um, because these companies are talking about, you know, it's, it's, you know, uh, the, the the tightest labor market in 20 years and I, you know i that, saw a chart recently it was on bloomberg one of the uh, what's your biggest issue right now or, or, it was wages <laughs> you know and and if you look through a lot of these calls um 
on, you know, when they're talking about cost, you know, wages is a very big issue. And it's not just increasing wages, it's availability. And this is something I've also saw this quarter that I hadn't seen in the past, the mentioning of overtime. I mean, when's the last time you saw a company talking about overtime? So they're not able to find enough workers so they're they're paying overtime instead of you know maybe finding someone less competent or uh, you know less able to do the job. They're just paying people more internally. So I mean it's great for yeah. the for the average worker. I mean they are definitely do. This has been a, a horrible cycle for uh, real wages, and uh, it's been a great cycle for for the one percenters. But so, so I mean it's good news. But I think my point is things are tight. You know I mean I'm even seeing capacity constrained comments. I mean, obviously, we've talked about this, talked about this, and we've emailed back and forth about transportation. Uh, some on the spot market, you know, transportation is the cost there up, you know, over twenty percent. You know, it's not there's it's not like this capacity is just going to show up, you know. Um, right. And it's a, it's a truck driver shortage. You know, it was uh, what's that call I read? It was uh, oh god, forward forward air, and uh, yeah, that was it. So their CEO was talking about you know, someone asked him about expanding capacity and buying new equipment. And he was he said, I, I forgot exactly how he said it, but you know, if we can't get he said, I remember he said fannies. If we can't get fannies in the seat, it doesn't matter how much equipment you have, <laughs> right? right? So there's some real yeah. constraints here going on. And uh, it's also well, it's also the quality of labor. You know, I just we just got a new we just got a new dishwasher and uh, two guys came in, you know, one they both brought in the dishwasher. Uh, one guy immediately got on his phone, you know, and had his headphones on and started looking down. I don't know what he was doing. And the other guy tried to install the dishwasher. Well, he was having trouble. And and here I am going through the uh, installation manual, you know, like I know what I'm doing, but I'm trying to help. <laughs> so, so we got me and this guy trying to install the uh, the dishwasher and uh, go through this manual. And I'm like, something is wrong here with the labor market. Yeah. And then, and then, so they leave and they didn't install it properly. And then, and then we call a complaint and then they send you, you ever seen Pulp Fiction uh, when, when they send the wolf, that's who came next. You know, the wolf came. Oh, sure. yeah. yeah. The wolf, the wolf the figured, cleaner. figured out <laughs> right. that the factory had installed the drawers incorrectly. <laughs> so it was a labor issue at the factory. So, oh, geez. yeah, so the market is extremely tight. Uh, and I think if you know, your listeners probably can relate to a lot of this, you know, just finding finding good service right now is very difficult. Uh, you know, we had that hurricane here, you know, last year, you know, it took us several months to get the repairs done. Not not because we weren't willing to pay for them, but we couldn't find, you know, couldn't find the uh, available labor. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm seeing it in in my life firsthand. My wife uh, about a year ago went to work for a local coffee company here, kind of on the management side. They have a few locations here in Bend and a few in, in Denver. And just you know, keeping people at those close to minimum wage jobs, you know, baristas and things, has become a huge challenge for them. And then, you know, my kids are 17 and 18. They both had you know been working you know jobs at least in the summertime. The last couple of years, and you know, they basically have their pick right now. Oh yeah. Um, there's a there's a pizza place here in town that's you know offering fifteen dollars an hour to wash dishes. Right. right. Um, no, no. Jim, fifteen. Fifteen is the new minimum wage. You know, if you're a competent minimum yeah. wage employee, you can get fifteen right now if you search. If if you if oh, you're yeah. not very capable, you can still get twelve. <laughs> it's not too bad. Right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and, and you know, I told my kids. Uh, I think my wife saw an ad. You know, Jimmy John's the, is right here by our house is hiring, 
and it's fifteen an hour plus a six hundred dollars signing bonus. Wow! Um, just to make sandwiches. Yeah, um, yeah. That's yeah how we're, we're seeing that. signing bonuses now being advertised on the radio. I mean, pretty good ones. You know, I, this is really funny. I was recently, off, I mean, offered offered to interview for a CFO job. No, no kidding. And uh, the, the lady offering me the uh, interview said she got a signing. She got a bonus if I got the job. <laughs> So, really? yeah, yeah. So I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I really would like to run money again someday. Um, yeah. But, but another thing, you know, Jesse, I was just thinking, uh, yeah. it's not just price too, right? You know, all these companies, if they can't raise price, they're going to figure out a way to maintain the margins. And one of the ways they do that too is uh, they re-engineer their product or service or, you know, it's often called lightweighting. And I was just I was thinking about the the Bemis conference call I was on, and they do they do packaging, uh, flexible materials for packaging. And this is a good quote. Uh, That's a normal part of our business Uh, processes. As contracts come up for renewal, customers are experiencing lower input, and that's part of our strategy. Is we are constantly working on lightweighting, down gauging, and other initiatives. Recognize that that's an expectation of their customers. So what they're saying is. If they can't pass on the price increase, they're going to find a way, you know, again, lightweight that that package. And, and I don't know if you've used a plastic spoon or fork lately, but but they're no longer they're no longer rigid. You know, they're very flexible. <laughs> you might have, you know, they bend very easily. And that's that goes back to that sort of resin prices increasing 10, 50 percent, which I noticed on a lot of calls this quarter. And that will impact the durability of your 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 uh plastic cuttery. <laughs> yeah, you know that that's actually a really great point because you mentioned in one of your blog posts, I'm trying to see which one it was. I think it was the um uh which which call was it? Was it Unifirst? No, it was, I think it was um yeah, it was no, it was the Lincoln, the Lincoln um call when mm-hmm. they said we're in a very rapidly increasing inflationary environment. But they made a point a couple of times to say that this is these are global inflationary pressures too, and you know to me that's interesting because you know people have you know think oh we're in this massive disinflationary deflationary environment globally, but um, you know I I came across an article recently um, a couple of things that are related to to your your point here. Um, it was Japanese uh, Japanese price hikes um, in that we're seeing for the first time in, in twenty plus years. Mm-hmm. And another, uh, I think this was another chart from the Daily Shot, uh, Wall Street Journal was um, showing people complaining about the quality of services in Japan, mm-hmm. and so the companies there are just clearly, you know, uh, allowing the the quality of service to deteriorate as a way to save on on costs. And those are all point to the same, you know, inflationary pressures. You know, I love when people talk about Japan. They always talk about deflation. If you pull up the most expensive places to live in the world, many of the cities are in Japan. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? Right. <laughs> That's never made sense to me. Uh, maybe they yeah. need a little deflation, right? Uh, no, well, it's a great point. It's a great point on services. And I saw recently on Bloomberg uh, as well a headline come across saying incomes actually increased recently in Japan. So, uh, so maybe they're right, finally yeah. getting what they're wishing for. Yeah, there was a there's another article that I saw. Um, German government workers just uh, passed three uh, percent um, 
like backdated wage hikes just across the board. Um, you know, backdated to earlier this year, they get another three percent next year. Um, you know that the the uh, German unions um, got passed. So, you know, these things are not the kind of <clears throat> things that have happened for a long time. Um, you know, and I think it also, you know, there was a, a great article that somebody pointed to. Me. I think it was Brett Freeze on on Twitter, um, who text Global, I think, is his his Twitter account. He tweeted this article from the BIS, which also is totally contradictory to what people think about uh, demographics and inflation. Is you know, everybody says, oh, an aging society is you know deflationary, disinflationary, and the BIS wanted to look into this and see is that actually true. And they found the exact opposite, that an aging society has a direct correlation with rising, rising inflation. It's basically the, the dependency ratio. So the more dependence you have in an economy, the higher inflation um, you should expect in the economy. Um, and you think about that, you have all these retiring, you know, uh, older people and not enough young people to take care of them. So, I mean, we've been seeing wage pressures in hospitals and nurses and those kinds of things for a long time. Um, but it's just, uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, there was an article in the wall street journal about the teenage population just being, you know, so, you know, not enough to, to supply these jobs. And that's where this, you know, uh, inflation's really, I think coming from is these longer, uh, you know, demographics and, uh, dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, there's certainly a cyclical, you know, um, aspect to it within, uh, you know, unemployment so low, but there's also, I think, secular forces too, probably at play. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, when I was a teenager, I got my first job at Baskin Robbins, uh, eventually worked my way up to head scoop. Uh, it was still to this day is probably my favorite job I've ever had. Uh, you know, I, I was only paid, I think, $3.50 an hour. <laughs> but but, right. I, but, but yeah. the benefit was all the ice cream you could eat. Um, but, you know, now teenagers could easily get $12, $15. Uh, I, I had a reader email me tell me about his daughter's 13. And, and uh, I'm not sure how, but she got a job making $15 an hour. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think right now everyone talks about the labor participation rate. If you want a job right now, you can find a job, right? So if you're not working, there's something wrong. And for me, of course, that's asset prices. <laughs> but but there's you know either you don't want to work or you know you're waiting for, for even even better wages. But if, if you're willing to apply yourself currently, I'm very confident you'd be able to find uh, a, a job, a, a pretty good one too, um, if, you, if you put in some time to, to learn new skills. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, uh, literally my, my kids are looking for their summer jobs right now. They haven't even applied anywhere and they have people asking us, hey, are your kids available? I mean, like you're literally right. that. You're like, you're like their agents. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, Jesse too, it's not like um, the federal reserve doesn't know this because if, if you read their own beige book, I mean, they clearly talk about this. Um, you know, I pulled up last month's beige uh, book, and, and that's sort of what they do is sort of what I do with the conference calls is they talk to, to business leaders and, and ask around and, and try to figure out what's going on in the real world. And they talk about labor and they say uh, outlooks remain positive, uh, concerned about newly imposed and or uh, proposed tariffs, gains in notice in retail sales, mixed results vehicles, residential construction strong. But they say widespread employment growth continue. Uh, labor markets across the country remain tight. 
There's difficulty finding qualified candidates across the board. Reports of labor shortages, reports of overtime, you know, again, labor shortages. I mean, this is they must put this report on their desk. Right. And then you assume they read it. And then and then you go back to the Fed funds rate at one point five, one point seven five. And we're openly talking about labor shortages and overtime. You know, the last time I remember that was 1999 when wages were, were reported to be growing four to five percent. You know, this is a very similar feel to it to me anyways in the late 90s when uh, labor was very tight. And this goes back to Jesse just talking about rates and, and valuations in the stock market. And it's something I wrote about, I think, in June or July of 2017. Going forward, the bond market and stock market are no longer buddies. Right. They're no longer best friends. From here forward, because of where we are in the cycle, because of the tightness in the cycle, uh, they're going to be adversaries. And that's what we've seen. You know, we've seen short term rates increase considerably. I know that the yield curves flatten uh, some. Um, so when the but when the stock market rises now, you're seeing that increase in short term rates. So at some point, there's a breaking point, And I'm not sure when, but I'm very encouraged by it. I mean, one, I'm getting paid more to wait. But two, I'm, I'm more optimistic that this cycle is proceeding um, and eventually will end. Yeah, there's there's a couple of uh, things I thought of, you know, while you were talking about, you know, CPI. Everyone's focused on CPI, core CPI. The Fed, the New York Fed puts out their underlying inflation gauge, which they use to determine sustainable trends in inflation. And this thing's going straight up right now. It's three 3.2% for April. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, it's rarely been over 3% in the last 20 years. So, you know, the last couple times were, you know, 2005, six, and then also right in 2000, you know, late 99, early 2000, the only two times in the last 20 years where the underlying inflation gauge was over 3% and rising. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, they, they have to see it. They have to see it. And that's why, you know, they're, you know, trying to lay the groundwork for four hikes this year or at least three. Well, and they're, um, and they're also laying the groundwork for inflation exceeding 2%, right? So, right. so, so we're talking about, you know, it being symmetrical now where before it was sort of a set target. Uh, yeah, I should I should just run the chart and look at you know the, that underlying inflation gauge versus the Fed funds rate because that would probably be the visual depiction of what behind the curve looks like. Right, yeah. and, and, when, and when you uh, think about what the companies are talking about, you know, when they're talking about price increases, it's not zero to two percent. You know, there, I had I did see some that were around one, but most of them are like two to five, I would say, um, yeah. and, and that's probably an you know on average three and a half is not probably bad. I think you know benchmark for inflation right now and that that sort of agrees with what, what you're saying well yeah and there's also you know you were you were talking about you know stocks and bonds you know not being buddies anymore so yeah i mean we've had the risk-free rate at least at the short end has been zero for the better part of a decade now you're having risk-free you know rates of you know two percent plus that's got to compete with with risk assets. Sure, most definitely. I mean, if you think about you know just the yield on the S and P five hundred, right? I know a lot of people have talked about this, but uh, you can get a six month T bill now over two percent slightly. So uh, the stock market is now competing with T bills. Yeah, and and I think we're seeing that. I mean, one of the you know stocks that uh, you mentioned. Um, General Mills, you know, uh, you've suggested your readers go read that 
conference call and you know consumer staple stocks are one of these um you know groups that have been hammered in the market and i think it's because they're at the epicenter of this inflation but it's also because a lot of these stocks were bought just as as income you know um, as bond alternatives right people just bought them right. for the dividend and they didn't care you know like what what's fair value for the stock they're like i i want my three percent dividend that's right. They were looking at the dividend and they were not looking at uh, what is the appropriate discount rate for this business. And of course, when you calculate that, you should already assume, and this is why you don't discount rate, you don't use a discount rate of 3% for equities, right? There, there are there are risks to every business. And, and for these consumer staples, although they are lower risk businesses, they still have risk. And I think we're seeing that this quarter in a lot of earnings reports uh, where you're seeing industries what uh, was the uh, private label food company at uh, Treehouse Foods, I believe. Uh, they're talking about price increases. And I forgot what they said exactly, but something as if in, um, you know, it's the first time the industry has raised prices. I want to say like in a decade, you know, it was, yeah. this is new. This is new to a lot of companies um, trying so, to figure yeah. out how to raise prices. It's, it's so, so when I talk about inflation being in the pipeline, uh, a lot of that is is people having to revisit inflation because they haven't had to implement price increases for so long. Right. And I, I keep hearing in the back of my head, you know, people, I think, I don't know, uh, we hear the term transitory. And every time I hear it, I, I'm just like, I, I don't I don't know where that's coming from, because I mean, I yes, I guess I could see how people would say, OK, well, we're, you know, late cycle. We just had some fiscal stimulus in the form of a tax cut. So this is just kind of a transitory uptick in inflation. But then when I when you hear what these companies are saying, it's certainly you know, uh, more than a transitory, you know, one or two quarter type thing. Um, but the other thing I think about, no, I, the, I agree. yeah, the BIS p- pointed out um, these demographic forces, you know, the secular forces of inflation mean that, uh, you know, well, it, it, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. You had this, the baby boom. And when those people hit, you know, entered the labor force, it was a huge supply of labor that came on the market that kind of, depressed the the cost of labor um and now those forces are reversing and they're saying over the you know instead of a 30 35 year disinflationary trend we're gonna we're looking at a you know 20 30 year inflationary trend just based on demographics so um yeah i I think it's important to distinguish between the secular and cyclical or a secular um but there's also to me this fits perfectly like you're talking about you know stocks and bonds and the interrelation um the Fed, I think it was the San Francisco Fed, came out with a, a study a few years ago that showed demographics and uh, stock valuation, stock market valuations. And the P.E. ratio is really highly correlated uh, over long periods of time with the size of the population entering their peak earning years. And it shows that you know baby boomers hit their peak earning years when? Right during the dot-com mania. And that's no no coincidence, right? That there's they're saving and investing their peak amounts right when stock prices go nuts, and that that demographic uh, kind of the other side of that as it moves through the uh, the boa constrictor, you know, it's twenty twenty five twenty six is uh, you know they said if this relationship holds up between valuations and demographics, they they forecast a PE of eight on the S&P 500 in 2026. 
Um, oh, I think he just gave me goosebumps. Eight multiple. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that goes with you know these. Also, the what would what would also make PEs you know so low? Well, you get rising risk-free rates over the next eight to ten years, and and you know that'll do it, right? Yeah, and I think the assumption for a lot of investors is we have so much debt, um, rates can't go up. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I can sleep well with that was my assumption. <laughs> Things are so bad that, that they can't get worse. Um, yeah, no, that's that's a good for, point, though, because that's, you know, Lacey Hunt is, has been making that point for a long time. Um, uh, but, but if inflation's at 4 or 5%, why can't rates go higher, you know? And and here's the, the big question. If inflation's running, let's just say 3 to 5%, and stocks fall, Hard. Say, say the, the short end gets to four to five percent is which where we were at the end of last cycle. You know, that's not not too out of the ordinary. And, and stocks drop 30, 40, 50 percent. But inflation is running three to five percent. How how can the Federal Reserve come in and, and start another uh, quantitative easing program with that type yeah. of inflation? So I think that's the biggest threat to to the um you know, the safety or, or, or the safety net for a lot of today's valuations is that that belief that if things get so bad, the Fed will step in and, and again, uh, purchase asset, right? Purchase assets. Yeah. You know, and I, I a few months ago, I interviewed Bill White, who was the chief economist at the, the BIS. And he we were talking about these, you know, these topics and and. The, one of the points that he made was, you know, if everybody thought QE was going to be inflationary, it turned out QE was disinflationary. Um, and so an unwinding of QE or QT, wouldn't that be inflationary? Um, well, that makes a lot of sense because um, if you think about the disinflation we did have, uh, I like to use the energy credit bust, uh, you know, 15, 16, we really did have, we were in a disinflationary environment. Uh, energy credit bust uh, didn't just impact the energy industry; it impacted many industries, many industrials, transportation. Uh, prices were declining. We had an earnings recession. I think what was it for five quarters or so? Uh, we were close to a real recession. You know, you had 500 billion in energy credit uh, that was up in the air. You know, people were a little concerned. But then in right. 2016, you know, that sort of uh, started to heal itself. You know, you had the ECB starting to buy corporate bonds. Uh, you know, uh, back in Japan, uh, setting the 10-year at 0%, you know, in that QE from both both of those central banks, I think reinflated the energy uh, credit bust. And, and, and now, you know, energy companies are able to raise equity. A lot of them raise considerable equity and debt. And, uh, you know, we're kind of back off to the races in energy now. So, so that drag is now, I think, again, you know, creating more inflation. Uh, because it's demanding more resources, but but the the, the point is very well t- taken. Is the excess credit or easy money created the oversupply, which created the bust, and you're seeing that in retail as well, right? There's certain industries where, but that's sort of run its course too, right? There's a lot of stores that have been closing, a lot of chains have been closing, but you think about Sports Authority, right? They went out of business. Well, after that gets liquidated, their inventory. Well, now there's one less competitor, right? So now Dix doesn't have to be as promotional, and they said that in their last call. Uh, but I would say I would say footwear, footwear is still very promotional. But, uh, but but my point is, you know, at some point that excess gets taken out, and that's nice to see. You know, I, I, one of the things I like about commodities, uh, it's one area of the market 
um, one of the industries that I think where capitalism still seems to function, you know, where you still have the booms and the busts and, uh, and you really? still have that volatility. So really, when the dollar got strong in 2014 or strengthened in 2014, all these uh, commodity names got hit. You know, I, that, that was sort of one of the areas I historically didn't own a lot of. But all of a sudden, I felt there was considerable value. And that was the function of, I think, the free markets and, and capitalism working. And uh, the stocks, a lot of those companies were allowed to, to fall considerably. Yeah, but, you know, you, have the, you bring up an interesting point, too, about, um, you know, QE and how can the Fed uh, go, you know, go back to QE if inflation is, is rising right now. And, um, you know, that reminds me of another thing that Bill White, you know, said to me, you know, there's a, a famous paper, I think Sergeant and Wallace were the, were the, uh, the authors um, about, uh, I think it's called some unpleasant monetarist uh, arithmetic, and basically says, you know, the central bank could do whatever they want as long as the fiscal authorities kind of stay under wraps. Um, but as soon as the fiscal, uh, you know, fiscal authorities start to dominate the monetary authorities, then the central bank has to turn their attention to uh, battling inflation. Um, and, you know, I think with the tax stimulus and things that we're seeing um, this late in the cycle with unemployment already at 4.9%, the Fed, you know, and these inflationary pressures already picking up before that uh, stuff even happening, the Fed is kind of, like you said, put in a bind where it's like, how could they, how can they go pursue QE uh, again, to save the market if inflation's running at four or five percent, it's it's to me this is you know th this is where the Fed put be you know begins to uh, I guess you know come under uh, come into question. Right, and and at the very least, I think there will be a lag in policy response. So if we do have a sharp decline in asset prices, say stocks drop thirty to fifty percent to revert to the mean. And uh, then maybe maybe we do have you know a huge drop in demand and maybe prices do eventually fall. Uh, but I think there's going to be a little more lag this time. And you talked about the fiscal policy, you know, because you are going to have that that stimulus. You know, the, the fiscal policy at this stage of the cycle, you know, everyone wants growth right now, uh, and that of course will help. But I'm not sure if, if I was invested in equities right now, I would want strong growth, you know, because things are clearly tight um, from a labor perspective, capacity perspective, um, that I'm not sure that would be in, in their best interest to, to get above average growth from here. Well, and, you know, it's, it's like using up your bullets that you would potentially use for the next, uh, you know, cyclical downturn, right? I mean, no question. it's, it's pro-cyclical pro policy rather than counter-cyclical, which is kind of, you know, that's why a lot of the Keynesians are like, what the hell's going on right now? <laughs> they, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't like it. But, uh, another thing, um, that I, that I uh, am kind of curious as to, you know, your thoughts about is, you know, the other side of this Sergeant Wallace papers are saying that um, the trouble for a central bank when inflation picks up like it is now is if the, the country is overly indebted and they have to raise rates to battle inflation, but they can't raise rates too much because uh, the government can't afford higher interest rates on the debt. So, you know, it's it's an interesting bind that the Fed might find themselves in. It's probably why they're not raising rates faster 
than they are now. What, what do you? What well, do you I agree. There? I mean, and and you know, I think I think we know why they're not raising rates faster. It's it's because of the past two cycles, right? I mean, what what the policymakers learned from the past two cycles? Um, asset inflation is good. You know, just don't let it pop. You know, don't right. let these things pop. So right. so the last cycle, you know, they went gradual. Uh, they were very transparent. You know, they did 25 beeps um, until it popped. And uh, so this time they're going to do the same thing, but they're just dragging their feet. You know, they're going very, very slowly. I mean, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, you know, it's still over $4 trillion. Um, and again, the Fed funds rate is still below even the government's uh, measurement of inflation. So we have negative real rates and a $4 trillion balance sheet, and we have unemployment uh, around 4%. And clearly wage pressures and shortages and companies paying overtime. So so I, I would say, yeah, they're being extremely cautious and careful not to uh, deflate asset prices. But the longer they let this go on, the higher asset prices go. You know, the Russell 2000 now is again at 1600. It's back to its record high. Uh, you know, it, it's just it's tight. It's tight. So the longer it gets, this continues, uh, the tighter things get. And um I don't think you want to fall too far behind, whether on, on asset inflation or uh, real world inflation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, uh, I think it's uh, uh, Ben Hunt is, is his name. He writes Epsilon Theory, I think is the name of his website. He talks about how narratives are really what, what drive the, the price actions in the market. And I'm surprised that this Fed behind the curve narrative is not taking off. I mean, with it so plain. Um, to see in the earnings reports. But it's because, Jesse, if you watch financial television, again, I've been watching more uh, because I've, I've been boycotting my Starbucks price increases. Um, because when these numbers come out, these uh, economic numbers come out, they that's what these economists, Wall Street strategists, that this is the truth, right? <laughs> I mean, 0.1% increase, and I forgot what the wage number was last jobs report, but it was very small as well. Uh, that's what that's the talking point that's used, and that's what is used in their analysis. So if it's point one, it's point one, right? So inflation is very low. Um, so I, I don't think I think Main Street and Wall Street are two different animals, uh, and they just see things very differently at times. Not always, but there's certain times when the bottom up conflicts with the top down, and I think we're at one of those periods right now. Yeah, where the where the trend is clearly changing, it just has not uh, been fully embraced. Um, it's it's just ironic to me that you see last year the focus was on you know falling cell phone bills, right? <laughs> Supposedly, you know, and 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 like that's not transitory, but all these <laughs> these uh, right, and and then this latest CPI report, it's it's uh, used car prices are are falling, and and it's just picking out the one. Um, you know, thing that uh, is, you know, deflationary. It's, oh, see these deflationary forces? Use car prices or fly cell phone. And it's like, I, I looked at, I looked back, because when it, last year when they were showing the cell phone stuff, the, the first iPhone in 2007 was 500 bucks. <laughs> um, then we get the iPhone 10 and, you know, wait, late 20, 10 years later, and it's a thousand bucks. It's up, it's up a hundred percent in, you know, 10 years. And, the, the average cell phone bill is actually up, you know, 50, 60% over that same time frame. So that's, you know, 7% inflation in the, in the price of the iPhone and, you know, at least 3, 4, 5% inflation in your cell phone bill. Those are the long Well, that, that and we didn't even have these things, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a whole new expense for us. 
And why aren't cars dropping like TV well, yeah, prices? You know, I, I will say TV prices have definitely declined. Uh, that's one area that the first time I agree with. Right. We just bought a new TV, and um, it was well, amazing what you get now for, for less than $1,000. Well, not only are the prices going down, they hedonically adjust them too. Because of course. <laughs> but that's, see, that's, you know, we're talking about how, how does Wall Street or the economists not get it, but they use these numbers, like, like the hedonic adjusted numbers. You know, I talked about the, the dishwasher being installed. I mean, no one really uh, takes the reduced quality of service into consideration when, when adjusting prices. But if, you know, you go from a roll down window to an electric window, you know, it's a the huge improvement, and that's deflationary. Um, yeah. But that's not my expertise; just sort of a, <laughs> sort of real life experience. Right. There's and there's another point to the rising cost too that I, I'd like to just get your thoughts about. I mean, um, for corporate profit margins have been you know extremely high you know for for a long time now, and the tax cut you know obviously just just boosted them to to record highs. Um, but if these cost trends, uh, continue, right. I mean, that the the companies are going to try and pass through costs to consumers as much as they can. Um, but I mean, what are your thoughts on profit margins and, and cost inflation? I think from what I'm reading, I think they're for the most part going to be successful in passing these on. Um, there's always a chance they don't. You know, they announce something and they don't work. But from what I'm seeing, the psychology has changed to where it's more acceptable now to ask for a price increase. You know, I think it was Watsco. They do a HVAC equipment. Um, you know, they were talking about seven, eight, nine percent price increases. Right. But the CEO said, you know, clearly that's probably not what, what they'll get, you know. Uh, so is it three, four, five percent? You know what? And what do you need to maintain margins? Maybe they they announce the price increase, assuming you're going to get half, right, to maintain margins. So I think a lot of that's going on right now, and uh, there's clearly some pressure on margins for certain companies, uh, but they're responding. You know, they're not just they're not just going to sit idle and, and take a hit to these margins. I think the bigger threat to margins is a reversal of the credit cycle and the ultimate decline in demand. You know, people often talk about these these new margins and sort of sustainable, and maybe they are, you know, if the business cycle never reverts. But if you plot the chart of margins next to a chart of credit growth, you know, you'll find they're pretty, they're, they're nicely correlated. So a lot of this, I think, growth in margins is often due to the growth in aggregate demand, which is closely tied to the growth in credit, right? So, uh, you know, I find it all very interesting. And I, w- I was talking to a friend of mine recently about, he was, ta- we were talking about uh, the market cap of the cycle, you know, you know, market cap to GDP. You know, everyone talks about how uh, it takes more debt now to generate, you know, a dollar of GDP. I, I tend to think it takes a greater amount of market cap to generate a dollar of GDP, you know, because we're so dependent now on asset inflation. You know, I remember when the Dow crossed 10,000, that was a very stimulative environment. And uh, I think this cycle would have surprised many people, including myself and probably, you know, many of the Fed members, is how high stock prices had to reach before they noticeably influenced uh, consumption and demand. You know, I wrote in a post not too long ago, maybe it was a while ago, I was, I was like, you know, what is the magic number? And it's because, you know, 2016, consumers were not spending very aggressively. You know, I, I noted at that time, uh, many consumer companies were struggling. 
And I, and I, I guess I joked in one of the posts, you know, what is the magic number? Is it down 15,000? You know, that's about when they started contemplating uh, stopping QE3. Or was it Dow 20,000? That didn't seem to work. But I think the magic number was Dow 25,000. <laughs> that, that something lit a spark there. Uh, but I think most people would have thought it would have been sooner, right? You know, you have home prices now uh, back near record levels. I know where we live, home prices are on, on fire. So uh, I think we're there. You know, I think this, and this goes back to why I don't think rates are going to cooperate anymore. I think we're at a level with asset inflation that it's created uh, more consumption, uh, a tighter labor market, it, it just tightness everywhere. Again, I'm seeing capacity constraints, uh, something I haven't seen this cycle before. So we're at a level, I think, with asset prices. You go higher from here, the bond market does not have your back. In fact, it, it's going to fight you on the way up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic, and and I, I think you're absolutely right to point out, you know, the diminishing returns of of QE and the wealth effect not being quite as as uh, powerful as it was, you know, back when you know 2009, 10, 11. Um, you know, it's it's it puts the uh, the Fed in an interesting, um, you know, bind like like we were like we've talked about. Um, what uh, you know. What I guess to me, it's it's just uh, interesting that I, I you know in terms of the profit margins, you know, coming back to that, you know, I'm wondering what this is. You know, this this hasn't reverted to mean like it should have. You know, Jeremy Grantham's even talked about this. It sh- should be the most mean reverting series in finance. Um, and I was I was hoping you might say yes, rising costs are going to you know about, sorry global problem markets, but it's probably you know it probably has more to do with the labor share of of income going down so much over the last few years and and different social dynamics that have to change to uh, to read. But Jesse, that. it's it's um, that and the elevated demand. You know, the productivity miracle in the late nineties. Uh, would that have been a miracle without Nasdaq five thousand? Right. I, I mean, that was an artificially stimulative environment you know that wasn't normal so you had of course you had productivity miracle because demand was so strong because everyone was rich you know (laughs) so when you're in a recession things are much different but we haven't had a recession in nine years right so it's so it's like a positive feedback loop that uh, yes okay yeah interesting and and i don't i this is one of the things you know i'm not invested currently you know i'm still waiting it out of course rates are higher so it's been easier but uh, I'm not necessarily negative on where we are in the economy or business results. You know, I think they're quite good. And I think Q1 was solid and it would have been even stronger. You know, really, we've had a, a couple of good quarters, Q3, Q4, 2017. I think we would have had another one in, uh, in seven, uh, 18 uh, Q1. But weather is another theme I, I didn't mention and I want to mention now. That was a big theme this quarter. So without that weather impact, you know, you had you had snow in April. Uh, it, it was pretty nasty spring. Uh, without that weather, I think you would have had a, a, another good quarter. And so I think there's a little pent up demand you'll see in Q2. We saw this in 2014. Uh, we had very bad weather. Uh, Q1 was weak, and then we had a very strong Q2, Q3. We were on our way, and this is interesting. 2014, we were on our way to getting to where we are now. You know, we were on our way. Things were starting to tighten up. Uh, but the energy credit bus just short-circuited that. I think it's a very important point. 15-16, I think, prolonged the cycle because of the energy credit bus. 
That bought the cycle time. It gave it, it gave it time to breathe. We almost slipped in recession, but we didn't. But it also uh, was the catalyst for further central bank uh, intervention. And uh, we know what happened after that. You know, stocks again went up considerably, and uh, credit got easy again. And now here we are. You know, two, after sort of a year and a half of an energy credit bust, I think the things are back to where they were or were about to become in uh, Q3 2014. Right. That's a good point. Um, you, you mentioned a couple times you're, you're not invested. Um, and uh, what's it going to take for you to, to start nibbling on something? I mean, well, is it, is it, uh, you know, you're just not finding any micro opportunities. Is it the macro that's keeping you away? Um, it's, it's bottom up. So I, I, you know, I think there are right now some special situations you could find where if A, B, C, and D all happen, you can make money, you know, but it just feels more like speculating yeah. to me. I was working on a, a micro cap or a small cap. Uh, it was a specialty chemical company that sold to uh, pharmaceutical companies. They had some generic business. Uh, the name was Aceto, and uh, I think it's A-C-E-T. And on the surface, it looked cheap. Um, you know, I did some digging, and then I, I just couldn't get comfortable with their balance sheet. And I'm glad I didn't because one day I woke up and the stock was down 60%. You know, <laughs> so, so uh, at, yeah. at this stage of the cycle, look, all value investors or most that I know, they are desperate for value, right? They are desperate to find something that – put in their portfolio. A lot of value managers are still required to be fully invested. So they have to buy something. So everyone is looking <laughs> desperately for value. And uh, if you find it, I'm telling you, a thousand other analysts looked at it too. <laughs> you know? So uh, yeah. they're, they're, right now I'm finding there's a lot of landmines and I just rather let everyone else run over the minefield and I'll uh, run over a little later and <laughs> pick up the piece. You know that's that's one of the things that's interesting to me about your space in particular in the in the small cap world is you look at leverage among these companies and it's just off the chart. Um, you know you have you know people talk about you know corporate America has all this cash. Well, yeah, Apple has a bunch of cash, Facebook, Microsoft. You know the rest of the corporate America doesn't have much cash. They have a ton of debt that they've used for M and A and buybacks. And when I look specifically, just like from a big picture perspective at small caps, that to me is is what's uh, what's you know, potentially pretty frightening during the next uh, you know credit. Yeah, because this cycle. economic expansion, for the most part, until more recently, and maybe the middle of 2014, has not been that three to four percent you know typical growth. So a lot of companies. Uh, to meet their earnings per share targets, you know, they had to get a little creative with the acquisitions. And when your cost of capital is 3%, you know, it's not that hard to make acquisitions creative. Right. But lo and behold, the rates are rising and that debt is still there. And, um, and as you know, there's been some good articles on this recently where the maturity walls are, are next four to five years. Uh, a lot of debt's coming due, uh, you know, really next one to three. So uh, it'll be interesting. Right now that I'm noticing that companies are not having trouble refinancing. You know, they're paying a little more in some cases. In some cases, they're paying a little less. So it hasn't really impacted things now except on their, on their bank credit. But as far as the bond market goes, you know, it's still pretty open. And it appears that high-yield investors, which a lot of small-cap companies sell into, are still um, desperate for value as well or desperate for yield. 
Yeah. And I mean, you look at if you're a European investor, I mean, yes, you're looking at our high yield market as, as uh, you know, juicy returns, which, you know, for, to me, it sounds crazy. But, you know, when you look at what yields are over there, it's it's, I guess, relatively, um, you know, but in the uh, in, in the small cap space, too, I think I read somewhere that, you know, something like half the companies have um, a ton of floating rate debt too, so that's got to be become an issue at some point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's some of them may, may be too small to do, say, a three five hundred million dollar issuance. You know, it's it's pretty hard to issue a hundred million dollars, right? If that's what you need, uh, and maybe that would do more a, a direct uh, loan to an insurance company, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, so the bigger the bigger issuances are harder for small cap companies. So that's one of the reasons they often turn to. Uh, credit lines and, and syndicate financing, which of course is booming as well. Just for an article, that's over a, a trillion dollars. So uh, a lot of trillion dollar marks we're hitting this cycle, which is uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was, that was a great, uh, I just literally uh, did an interview with Simon Mikhailovich and he gives a presentation where he talks about people don't understand what a trillion is. It's, you know, you, <laughs> about what's, what's a million, a million seconds ago, something like, I don't know, a few days ago, uh, a billion seconds ago, is like 20 to 36 years ago, I think. And then a trillion seconds ago is 36,000 years ago. <laughs> uh, and it starts to put it in perspective. What is a trillion? Well, a trillion seconds was, you know, the stone age. <laughs> so it's Jesse, it's, I'm, yeah, I'm so old. Right. I remember when a million dollars was a lot of money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Hey, you know, I, I'm going to put a link in these show notes to your website. I think it's, it's a must read. And I, I got to tell you, I've had a lot of people on Twitter say, hey, thank you so so much for introducing me to Eric Cinnamon. His, you know, his views have been so valuable to me uh, over the last few months. But what's it going to take for us to get you to open a Twitter account, start sharing some stuff in more real time? Oh man! As soon as my daughter gets out of travel softball, I think I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> we just, we yeah. were talking earlier before we went on about our, our kids and, and, and free time, and it's just has not. I haven't had a lot of free time lately. I'm I'm scared if I get on Twitter, I will be uh, overwhelmed with uh, you know just trying to keep up. But uh, yeah, and you know. Real, Another thing I was thinking about is reducing my potential buy list. You know, it's <laughs> at 300, it is tough. So, uh, it's a lot of work. You know, while I'm not, maybe while I'm not working, maybe I'll move that down some. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, just let's upgrade it to the top 100 or something. It'd give you yeah. a little more free time. Yeah. yeah uh, no. Hey, well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to do this again. This is super valuable and I appreciate it. Yeah, Jesse, I always enjoy speaking with you. Thank you very much uh, for having me. And, uh, let's, let's talk soon. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.